the road to spiritual maturity. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of Sunday, June 20th, 2021 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Despite knowing Jesus, many of us lack in spiritual maturity. Reverend David Pelegi, taking clues from the life of King David, points us to the path of transformation and maturity. We must discern the world as it really is, allow God to prepare us, and live a lifestyle of gratitude that bears testimony of God's faithfulness to us. We continue with the lectionary readings. The first reading is from the book of Samuel, the first book of Samuel, chapter 17. And before I read it, just two things. It talks here about how um, high Goliath is, six cubits and a span. That's nearly three meters tall, nearly 10 feet tall. And it talks about the armor that he has, and that's 57 kilograms of armor that this guy wears. And the head of his spear, that's nearly seven kilograms, just the head of his spear. This is the man called Goliath. So hear the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot, Azekar, in Ephes, Damim. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armored with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had graves of bronze on his leg, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. If he is able to... But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When all, Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left someone in charge of the sheep, took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to battle line 
shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against the army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as he had before. And David heard him. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a boy. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescued the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a cloak of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine's army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals on the earth, so that all the earth may know 
there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistines. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down, face on the ground. These are the words of the Lord. The next reading is from the book of Mark, um, chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping, on a cushion, the disciples. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that uh, your word will indeed instruct us. And pray that uh, it will guide us and direct us. We ask that, um, first of all, it will challenge us. <clears throat> Lord, we ask that uh, you would give us the grace not to be apathetic or distracted, but, Lord, to hear your voice and see really who you are. And, Lord, to um, allow that word to heal and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was... um, Well, as in recent um, months, weeks and months, uh, the main topic at our house, in our home, is um, the subject of uh, maturity, emotional maturity, <clears throat> uh, spiritual maturity, which I don't think there's a difference. People who are spiritually mature are usually emotionally mature. And uh, transformation, and sometimes Carol and I are asking the question, why is it that we as a community, so many of us who believe in the Lord, why is it that um, we so often never change and never grow? And um, <clears throat> yesterday I came across uh, an article that I had saved, and it's, it's a bit outdated, 
uh, or it's a bit uh, old, it's from 10 years ago, but I doubt that nothing has changed. And uh, this was a survey done by a, an American uh, company that um, has a very good reputation. And they asked Christians the question, and the question was, what is spiritual maturity? And um, interestingly enough, 20% couldn't answer it. They just didn't know what spiritual maturity meant or what it looked like. 21% said it was a relationship with Jesus. 15% said it's obeying the rules and applying the Bible. 14% said it's being moral and ethical. 10% said it's being spiritual. And um, 50% didn't know what their church or their congregation understood as spiritual maturity. They come up with their own answers or didn't have an answer. And 90% of all pastors survey in this same research said that the biggest problem they face in their congregations and uh, even in the life of the nation is the spiritual immaturity of the Christian community. Now, this is in a country, my country, the United States, in which we have the most phenomenal, phenomenal resources. I mean, we've got online Bible studies. We've got every kind of word study to help us to uh, uh, better understand the Bible. We have um, support groups and home groups and courses and we have counselors, praise the Lord for, the, for them, and therapists, and coaches, and uh, you name it, we have it. And uh, what wonderful resources, and we could rejoice in the gifts that God has given us. Yet even in the midst of all this richness, there is a huge amount of poverty, um, spiritual poverty. And when they asked ministers, preachers, and um, they, the laity, well, what are the biggest impediments? Yes, the biggest impediments to, to spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. Interestingly, they more or less had the both, both had the same answers. And the top two answers that both gave, one was a um, lack of motivation. Yes, people are satisfied with who they are and where they're at. And secondly was uh, distraction. Right? There were too many distractions in life, you know, to focus on the thing that is most important. And I was thinking about this, thinking about our two stories, which fit together really well. And it occurred to me that in so many ways, these two stories has present us with an issue. And that issue is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. And if we're too distracted or we're too unmotivated to ensure or to pursue, you should say, spiritual growth or spiritual maturity, 
This could actually bring in a way a spiritual death. And we have a great example. And that example <clears throat> um, would be King David. Now we make uh, King David a saint. Yes, but King David wasn't a saint. We know a huge amount about his life. In fact, of all the stories in the Bible about any human, and I'm not talking about Jesus, we know more about King David than simply anyone else, than Jacob, than Moses, than Abraham. In fact, um, an Israeli guy counted that um, David is mentioned a thousand and twenty-five times in the Bible, and another fifty times in the New in the Hebrew Bible, another fifty times in the New Testament. And um, the text about King David is brutally honest, brutally honest. And First uh, and Second Samuel and part of First Kings that concerns his life. These stories were written for us, not as entertainment, although they, they have some entertaining elements. These stories were written for us in such a brutal way, and then sometimes, sometimes they're very difficult to read. Yes, David committing murder, David committing adultery, after he had a lot of wives, the point that he commits adultery, David brutally making sure his enemies die, you know, when he's on his deathbed. So there's a lot of violence and uh, un, um, you might say, unbiblical and Christian behavior in these stories. And oftentimes we don't like to preach them or talk about them, with the exception of the story we are going to talk about in a moment. And so consequently, we sometimes don't really learn what's important from his life. And why do I say this is a matter of life and death? Because David starts off really well, but he ends badly. And he ends tragically. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, and God used him, but he brought a lot of tragedy upon himself and his family and the nation that he led. And so thus it is a matter of life and death. Those disciples in that boat, yes, with their inability to understand the power and the presence of God found in Jesus, it was a matter of life and death. And it's the same for us today. Yes. So, yes, it's a Sunday school story. <clears throat> you know, David and Goliath. Um... And the way that we often read this Sunday school story is probably in the most shallow of all ways. We read it, the little guy beats the big guy, yeah? We, um, loved stories, yes, of the, um, of the little hockey team that beats the big hockey team. Of the, you know, the poor 
half-educated woman who takes on the tobacco industry, you know, and somehow succeeds in bringing them down. Or we like when the little countries beat up on the big countries. Yes, the whole David, David and Goliath syndrome. We all love an underdog. Actually, I have to say, um, unless you're British. If you're British, then you adore the underdog. And the underdog can never do any wrong. <laughs> right? Um, and so that's often the understanding and, and the the phrase David and Goliath is found, yes, throughout popular literatures uh, throughout time, and used in many secular, certainly used in many secular ways. But again, the story in uh, chapter 17, it was a matter of life and death. And the Philistines, um, despite the, the reputation they got in the 19th century of being somehow uh, unsophisticated or crude, actually were a very powerful civilization. They were very sophisticated. They were culturally and militarily more advanced than the Israelites. And here they're threatening the people of God, but they're not only threatening the people of God, they're profaning at least in, in, from the mouth of Goliath, they're profaning the name of the Lord. And David comes and saves the day. But we can't read chapter 17, which Roy read for us. He probably will never forgive me for making him do that. But hopefully, Roy, when you come back from holiday, you'll have forgotten about the, the trauma that I caused you. But the, the key... Is it not? In chapter 17 is found in chapter 16. And I think this has, um, I, I believe that um, learning this lesson or and applying this at the deepest level will indeed help us as a community come to a place of, of uh, deeper maturity. Because here, up until chapter 16, we have the disappointment with Saul. Saul continues to fail as a king. Saul is one who, um, while he does wrong, while he disobeys the prophet, he never actually um, accepts responsibility as for his own failures. He only always blames it on someone else. Uh, David despite all his many weaknesses, uh, always says, I'm guilty, I confess, I repent. But we don't have that with Saul. And uh, the prophet Samuel is told to, to anoint someone else. And uh, the beautiful story is that he goes to Bethlehem and he, he ends up anointing David. Yes, the least in the family the smallest, the most unlikely. And the, the key, we, we all know this verse, we need to apply it to the next chapter. This is in chapter 6. Um, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliav and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
Now, who was chosen for his appearance? Saul. Saul was chosen for his appearance because he looked like a movie star. He looked like a hero out of a, you know, some kind of an action movie. So people chose Saul, yes, based on what they saw. And of course, the verse goes on, as you all know, the Lord does not look, on, does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here, I think the issue where I, uh, to all of these stories and the beginning of the place where I think there's a real spiritual transformation yes, is in the matter of seeing. It's in the matter of understanding or perceiving. You know, how should we perceive the world? How should we perceive the things of God? How do we perceive things in the community? And uh, we have a choice. Yes, and that choice is to perceive things in a very, you might say, shallow way or to um, see the world from the perspective of our own brokenness or to see the world from the perspective of our own culture and therefore to choose those values, right, or to decide what's important Again, based on what we see physically and what we understand, you know, that uh, what goes on around us, forgetting, yes, that we are so easily deceived. And the word see, lirot, roe, and and this these passages become very, very important. Yes, Samuel, sorry, Saul doesn't see. Yes, it's the Lord who sees. And in the beginning, it's David who sees. But later, David will also have a failure, yes, of of a spiritual understanding like Saul did. But David, sorry, but the Lord, right, looks upon the heart. He looks upon something deeper than than, uh, the... the, um, Deception, you might say, of outward appearances. And it's that understanding of spiritual reality, which I think becomes uh, a bit, something basic in our foundation. Otherwise, there will never be growth or transformation. If we're always choosing people, for example, by the way they look or by the way they present themselves, and we can't see something deeper, we're in trouble. If the values we adopt, and we'll all say, no, no, we're Christians, we have Christian values. No, we have, we have Christian values, but uh, in every generation, especially this one, our culture and the values of our culture infiltrate and mix. If we're not able to sort those out in a very, a very radical way, we will end up being deceived. We all say we admire Saul, but generally we act, uh, sorry, we all say we admire David, but generally we end up acting like Saul or the people of Israel. Now I said that the minute David loses that spiritual perception, or the way he loses that spiritual 
insight is the, is the moment that David starts to unravel, just like Saul unraveled. When David can't see, when he can't, yes, the um, consequences of getting involved with Bathsheba and having her husband killed, murdered, or when he can't see uh, what is going on in his family, yes, with uh, with rape and rebellion and dysfunction, this be this uh, ends up being the um, this. All these things happen at the end of David's life, and his loss of perception again becomes a matter of life and death. So how is it that we see? Yes. Well, first of all, sometimes we can't see. And I'd just like to remind you that in this David story, who it is the Lord who's at work. So this is a little bit of a paradox. We want to see, or we want to see the spiritual reality. We want to, you, we want to see things the way the Lord sees things, or to understand them the way that he understands them. But at times we can't. And we can't see how God, in his initiative, chooses David, this is a God thing, uh, and, and gives David as a way of saving the community, providing for the people of Israel. We can only see it when we look back. And so we have to have enough trust and enough faith that God's at work in our lives. And we have to have enough trust and enough faith that he is leading us and guiding us, yes, to a, not only just to a place of safety, but to a place of well-being. But at the same time, we have to say, Lord, let me see. Please keep me from being deceived. And one of the, um, the things that we're doing in the men's group, the only thing we're doing in the men's group, is we're reading the book of Revelation. We read it every Wednesday at a... At a, a for, for an hour to an hour and a half. And we don't read it for prophecy. We don't read it to find out what's going to happen tomorrow and, uh, you know, beat the Google News to the punch. We're reading it because it's an apocalypse. And the Greek word for apocalypse or apocalyptic means to unveil. It means to pull back something. Yes, it means to pull back Yes, the, the layers, you might say, uh, of deception that we see in the world. And it reveals to us not only who the, what the demonic is and what the price is for serving the demonic through idolatry or immorality, but it reveals to us even more clearly than any book in the Bible who the Messiah is, right? That's the kind of revelation, and that's the kind of seeing that we need. On one hand, we'll never totally see. On the other hand, we can ask and pray, yes, for that gift and for that insight, so we will not be easily deceived. And I would say the second thing that's, I think, of, of critical importance in the story is that uh, David simply wasn't a guy who showed up, yes, a little guy who showed up and all of a sudden, you know, beats the big guy. The Lord 
had been preparing David for years. And that preparation, yes, came in something very lowly. He wasn't um, an apprentice to the king. He wasn't a junior CEO. He was a shepherd. And Psalm 78 tells us, um, the end of Psalm 78, it says the following. It says, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. So David shows up. Yes. Saul, um, David shows up for the battle. David sees the spiritual reality of what's going on. But it didn't, something didn't come to him instantly. It's because the Lord had prepared him. And the Lord prepared him in the wilderness. And the Lord prepared him not only caring for the sheep, but protecting the sheep, protecting them from, from uh, wild animals. And so David has that experience. It wasn't very glamorous. And he wasn't in a spotlight. And by the way, as soon as David finishes off Saul, yes, it's another 10 years before he ends up as being king. And the Lord is still working in his life and preparing him. And again, this is all that discipleship is. It's a being prepared. And if, we, if we're not cooperative with the Lord, if we refuse to allow him to put us perhaps in places of service or obscurity, then again, it's a matter of, it can be a matter of life and death. We'll end up choosing the wrong way and dying and, and becoming entangled um, spiritually, whether it's resentment or jealousy, whatever. And we have a great case in the, in the story of, of Saul. Saul, of course, part of what unravels Saul is his jealousy of David. And so, my dear friends, all of us, We'll spend time being prepared, and we'll all spend time in the desert, you might say. The question is, can we pray, Lord, prepare me? Prepare me for the work that you have for me. Prepare me, right, for, for, um, or for maturity, or bring me to a place of maturity. And the Lord may put us in a risky place. Or he may put us in a place where nobody notices us or wants our autograph. He puts us maybe in a place of obscurity. And of course, not everyone's going to end up as King David. But again, David can say, in chapter 17, he can say, the battle belongs to the Lord. Verse, seven, verse 47. He knows that from experience. It's not some pious, you know, phrase he pulls out of the air, saying, oh, yes, the, he knows that God has guided him and protected him 
and enabled him to defeat the elements and the wild animals because he has that personal experience. We can't live on other people's faith. Yes, our children can't live on our faith. They have to have those experiences for themselves. And sometimes those experiences mean obscurity or something risky or something, you know, not very glamorous. But still, yes, we need to cooperate. And we need to be prepared to say, Lord, I'm prepared for you to prepare me. No matter what it costs me. And it's very interesting. The Lord doesn't prepare us, does he, in the same way. You know, when David is with Saul, Saul says, here, take my armor. You take my armor and you put it on. Well, that armor was something perhaps suitable or good for Saul. But it wasn't something suitable for David. Right? And so the Lord you might say, has, has a plan or something tailored for each one of us. Yes. And some of us may need more Bible study. And some of us may need to learn humility. And others may need to learn service. And others may need to learn to put away some kind of self-hatred. Yes. The wonderful thing about the Lord is that he'll prepare each one of us. Yes. In the way that we need. The... I want to talk about um, by the, uh, the the battle being the Lord, maybe going back to the just to the, the point of seeing David saw the real nature of the battle. See, the battle in chapter seventeen was Goliath profaning the name of God, making God ordinary making God um, common, taking the God of Israel, the God who makes heaven and earth, and saying, you're no different, right? Or no better than any of the other gods. And so when Goliath is defying Israel, it's not something ethnic. It's something actually very deeply spiritual, right? And David, again, to connect with this his personal experience. David had experienced the presence and the power of God. The disciples in the boat, they didn't know the presence and the power of God, even though sleeping on a pillow in their midst. And because they don't know that presence and power of God, they don't have a sense of confidence. They're hysterical. I think the thing to... Um, end on is that the psalm of the day which we didn't read was psalm 107 and I like psalm 107 because in it is a you might say it uh, commends us to a practice that will help us as a community to come to a deeper appreciation and a deeper trust in the Lord. Yes, because that's what Israel lacked. Israel, under King Saul, 
who was elected or chosen to fight the Philistines because he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He actually should have been the one out, out there fighting Goliath. But he's afraid, right? Because fear creates passivity. And sometimes fear creates, makes us do reckless things. Like in Saul's case, he sacrifices when he's not supposed to sacrifice. And, he, and when Samuel the prophet says, why did you do that? He said, because I feared the people. And those disciples in the boat are fearful. And so how is it that we don't succumb to fear? And again, seeing, having the right perspective, knowing God, having the experience, having, experience, having been experienced with him, or trained by him, prepared by him, these are very good but there is something more. And that is in Psalm 107. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from, uh, from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, north and south. And it goes on to say, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. So brothers and sisters, if we don't uh, encourage one another and we don't, re we don't give thanks to the Lord, and giving thanks is for, we, we do for something specific. Praise is general. But when we say thank you, we say thank you for were very concrete things that the Lord has done for us. And so, first, there's a gratitude, a constant gratitude for what the Lord has done for us. But a part of that gratitude, yes, is to tell others. In fact, it's even in the Hebrew word uh, of, of to, uh, thank you. Yes, the Hebrew word here is yada. Yada is to narrate or to confess or to tell. So it's in the giving of thanks that we're not only telling the Lord, yes, what he's done for us, but we're telling each other. And it's in the process of telling our st stories, yes, of what God has done for each one of us, that hopefully this builds our faith and our trust. And that faith and trust isn't in a system, and it isn't in a method, and it isn't in a doctrine. It's in a person, Right? It's in the Lord himself. And we're very forgetful. We, the Lord does something wonderful for us at 10 a.m. And at 2 p.m. we're complaining. You know, he's abandoned us. You know, we're forgetting all his, you know, his wondrous ways. And therefore, if we give testimony and if we remind ourselves and each other of the wonderful things that God has done for us, it, should, it does strengthen our faith. It strengthens our trust and confidence in a person, especially when we come to a place where all our human resources, you know, are been used up and they're somehow finished. Yes, like those disciples in a boat or like the armies of Israel facing the mighty Philistines. 
Those are the things that we need to, those are the stories that we need to tell to each other. And never be ashamed or embarrassed or to say, oh, I've told that so many times or mentioned this so many times. It will certainly increase, strengthen our trust. And it helps us to overcome fear. And again, fear perhaps in and of itself isn't a sin, but that fear leads to passivity. Yes. Or that fear leads to recklessness and doing stupid things that certainly later we will regret. And I think this is what it means in part to be spiritually mature. To come to that place where our lives are transformed. And the story of David in its brutal honesty, well, it's, it's nice and fun here. But later it gets a bit dark. But in its brutal honesty, I think gives us some really important keys. Again, seeing the world, the culture, and the spiritual reality as it really is. And we can train ourselves through knowing the scripture, but also through asking God for that gift, yes, to show us what's important and what's deceptive. And secondly, allowing God to prepare us or to train us not to be bored or distracted or unmotivated. And finally, gratitude. And we're grateful enough that we want to tell others and share with others and encourage each other with the wonderful things that the Lord has done for each one of us. I think those will bring us into a place of um, growth and transformation. Believing in Jesus is the start. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior is the beginning of a journey. It's not the end. I used to say, salvation is a gift. Discipleship, yes, is a process. So, Father, we pray that um, the story of David and Saul and Samuel, Lord, will not be only the stuff of Sunday school, but truly will be something that causes each one of us to think and to be challenged. And Lord, I pray that you will be with us in such a way as a community and as individuals, Lord, that we will start well and end well. Lord, we pray that um, since many of us have come so far, that as we come to the end of our story and we'll soon face you and give an account of our lives, we pray that we'll be so well-trained and well-prepared and well-seasoned 
and so discerning that you'll say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.